When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for December 6, 2018, the last WASP edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., Joining me from New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And from New York City, CBS This Morning's John Dickerson. Hello, John. How are you? Hello, David. Today, we will consider the life of President George Herbert Walker Bush and his place in history. Then, a vigorous and entirely successful effort to rig the Wisconsin and Michigan governments to strip power from Democratic elected officials. And what does that tell us about the state of politics and partisanship in 2018? We will be joined by Dan Kaufman, the author of the book, The Fall of Wisconsin and the World's Authority on what's going on in Wisconsin to go into that. He's even in Wisconsin. He's even in Wisconsin. My gosh, it'll be it'll be live <laughs> on the street. And then an audacious effort to steal a congressional election in North Carolina has been uncovered is the Republican Party to blame? Was it just a rogue operative? What does this tell us about the state of elections and partisanship in 2018? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And of course, dear friends, next week is our live conundrum show at the NYU Skirbel Center in Manhattan. There's still a few tickets left. It's 7.30 on Wednesday. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. An amazing set of conundrums coming at you for those of you at the live show. And the live show, by the way, you get the pleasure of it, but it, regular listeners won't get to hear it until until towards the end of the year. So if you come to the live show, you're going to get a preview. You're going to get the jump on all of the regular listeners. So please join us at the show. And, and you may hear us discuss such topics as why have B-Days never caught on in the U.S.? Or if all the entertainment you can ever consume in the future has to come from just one decade, which decade would you choose? Which is a hard question. That is a hard question for me. Yeah, I think I might I've choose this I've been pondering decade. it. Oh, interesting. Huh. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, the 80s is sort of when I was shaped, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I then you might actually be better off with none of that culture from the 80s. Yeah. Anyway, join us slate.com/live to get tickets. George Herbert Walker Bush died at 94, our 41st president. He had a great long life. The son of a senator, the father to a president and a governor war hero, CIA director, ambassador to China, vice president, and then, of course, president from 1989 to 1993, a life of extraordinary service. He was widely loved, and he's been almost universally honored in death for his leadership at helping to end the Cold War, 
for his coalition in the Iraq war, how he handled that, for his general decency, respectful manner, ability to compromise. He was the last Republican president to be willing to raise taxes and also recognized for more disappointing moments for the Willie Horton, the Willie Horton ad uh, that helped define the 1988 presidential election for his scorning of the Civil Rights Act way back in 1964, for his nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, his selection of Dan Quayle as vice president. But I think, you know, in some, he, I mean, I've said this on the show before, I regret, in retrospect, I actually regret voting for Bill Clinton in 1992. I think George H.W. Bush was a remarkable man and the, the the legacy of service and the work that he gave the country and the the manner in which he carried out his service and his self-abnegation and his his general uh, rectitude I think is uh, obviously at this moment is, is sorely missed but even at the time it was something that was valuable and 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 to be cherished and we will miss it John you I know have spent a lot of time thinking about him and and thinking about uh, his death and what's been what people have been saying about him is George H. W. Bush, the last of something, and if so, what is he the last of? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, and we'll get into the complexities of um, uh, of his record and and kind of when you get to talk about those because I want to I want to get your thoughts on uh, both of you the when it's right and proper to describe a man in full when you're also uh, when you also have families and nations and all of that mourning at the same time. But anyway, I think is he the last of a kind? Yes, um, in the in a couple of different ways. I mean, one, he is the last of. I mean, Jimmy Carter fought in World War II, but um, so he's not not the last of the great generation presidents, but he's almost the last of that. And his service was um, in the mold of the kind of heroic um, greatest generation um, story that um, that adds that makes something kind of special about his being shot down, fifty eight bombing missions, the youngest uh, um, naval aviator at the time. And also the way he approached Washington, the kind of country club Republican, Northeastern Republican, who uh, he is increasingly the last of those. Um, I mean, you basically have um, sort of Susan Collins um, and that's uh, and, and maybe Lisa Murkowski. And that's about it. And I think then also the idea of a life lived where you work your way up the ranks, where you believe in public service and find value in it for its own sake, and then also build a resume and ex- and go through government experience as a way to ultimately get to the presidency, that whole notion, you know, maybe it will come back in favor, but for the moment, uh, experience in Washington and in government and in administrations is seen as a liability. But that that approach to public service certainly makes him different than what we would expect today. Emily, what do you find to admire and deplore in Bush's career? What what is it? What is it that is wonderful? What is it that is troubling for you? Um, I think I admire the the character qualities that got George H.W. labeled a wimp um, because that seems like such an unfair characterization. I mean, especially given what we know about his military service, as John was just describing, but also it casts masculinity in such um, kind of – in such extreme gender terms, as if like someone who's just a little self-effacing and low-key um, is somehow wimpy. So I respect the and admire the part of him that just continued to be himself in that sense and didn't try to 
fake it to like turn himself into some more typically uber masculine figure. You know, the deplorable part of George H.W. Bush, I think, kind of starts with his willingness to align himself with people who were racist. Um, It starts with his decision to vote against the Civil Rights Bill in 1964, and he memorably characterized it as a bill that was only for 14 percent of the country and talked about how he cared about the other 86 percent. You know, the 14 percent of the country um, who were people of color at that time were really struggling to have anything approximating equal rights. And so, You know, what you see there is H.W. making the kind of compromise to give him the benefit of the doubt um, that was really damaging for American race relations and for going forward. You know, the Willie Horton ad, like you just can't let him off the hook for that. And I also think it's hard to underestimate how important it was in American politics. I mean, obviously, Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon race baited in their campaigns, but H.W. kind of bringing it back in because he had this veneer of decency. I think it made that kind of racially tinged appeal in a campaign okay for a lot of other Republicans. You know, there's this crazy detail about Willie Horton, which is that nobody apparently ever referred to him as Willie before that ad. His name was William. But they, you know, showed these incredibly dark complexioned pictures of him. They just made him sound, um, I guess, more street or rougher or whatever they thought that nickname was going to accomplish. And that really is deplorable. And then, you know, the other obvious thing to bring up here is his record on AIDS. I mean, there were people at the time who basically said, like, we are dying because you are not acting. And I wonder what to ascribe all of this to. I mean, some of it was politics. He was courting evangelicals and conservatives who, you know, did think that homosexuality was a sin and who were almost entirely white. So kind of throwing aside African-Americans in particular was a way to score political points. But I also feel like if you're going to lionize his character, you have to reckon with what a huge failure this was, a failure of imagination to imagine the lives of people kind of outside the club. And and that I really wrestle with in trying to um, appreciate the good parts of his legacy because it seems like a pretty fundamental flaw to me. Man, that was a harsh take, dude. Like you made, you said one nice thing about the dude, which was that he was a wimp in ways that you appreciated. And then it was just that that's really well, that's like that. To, that yeah, to that you, is where I land. Yeah. Like how you where you land. Wow. That is so not where I land. I know. But part of the reason I land there is I have been listening to people all week land where you guys land um, and not to make well, this all about race and gender. Don't characterize but like, John. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, David, for actually listening. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Okay, fair enough. But I think that the um, kind of instinct of maybe adulation is strong, but, you know, look, yes, when someone dies, we honor them. But I actually think that when someone was the president, you're allowed on the next day to also remember people's flaws. And Uh, I really don't understand this instinct for, and I'm not accusing you of this, but okay, so good. We agree with that. But I do think there's been some instinct to just kind of whitewash his record, especially because we're trying to draw a contrast with Trump. And I just like don't appreciate it. Well, I, so I think that we should find a way. In fact, a, a dying president or perhaps John McCain could have done this, which is to, in your dying requests, when you're figuring out who's going to sing and give the eulogies and all of that, to set aside a specific moment in which someone who you trust and is fair-minded can give the um, candid assessment of your uh, 
of your history because there are these uh, rougher patches of um, of George Bush's legacy and to create expectations that go through the roof in death misshapens the office. I mean, one of the re- one of the things people say makes the presidency so hard is all of the biographers come in and write these gargantuan books that make every president sound like a superhero. And that makes it hard for us to treat the office normally because he is a public person. Back to Emily's point, there is this requirement. We all understand the, the need to um, pay homage to somebody who has dedicated so much of their life to the country and also the family's um, grief. But they are. This is not a private person. This is a public person. And, but it feels like there's not. What is the right time for that? Is it the day of? Is it the day after? Is it a week later? When? When is it proper to put them into perspective? And all presidents have to be put into perspective. If you think about our great president FDR, obviously has huge failures of both omission and commission. The internments, turning away the Jews, like. Big, big, big moral failings for somebody who said the office was primarily one of moral leadership. Um, And we understand that presidencies like human beings have a balance of good and bad. And our job is to wrestle with these challenges to their record. I think um, Willie Horton is is not unlike um, another thing that happened when he was actually president, which is at the RNC when uh, Jim Wright, with the Speaker of the House, was um, deposed by uh, um, or, or had to leave because there were 68 ethics charges against him. Um, Tom Foley came in as the Speaker and the RNC put out a press release that said Tom Foley out of the liberal closet. They were trying, they being Lee Atwater, was trying to um, raise questions about Foley's sexuality and compared him to Barney Frank, the openly gay member of Congress. That was, you know, that was in the Willie Horton category. President was president, leader of the party. And in his diary, he really, he said he hated that kind of thing, but he pretty much left it, it left that in his diary. Emily's point about the Civil Rights Act is is um, is important, but so also is that he voted as a congressman uh, in favor of the 1968 Fair Housing Act, which was not what conservatives in Texas wanted him to do. I would add one other thing to the to the um, negative category is that the President Bush in 1988 did a lot of things outside of Willie Horton to raise questions about Michael Dukakis's character that were and his sanity or allowed things to happen that, that question his sanity that that go beyond simply checking on his record and using the flag, holding holding rallies in front of a, a flag factory, which essentially suggesting that, that Dukakis was not a patriot. That is not consistent with all of the good qualities that he had and the standard to which um, – uh, he held himself and he held his children and that he is a repres- that he is also a representative of in many of the things that he did. All right. I want to say a number of things. Number one, the the fact that dirty politics was practiced by him and practiced in his name, um, w- which he you know held his nose or turned away from so that he didn't have to face it. I mean, he didn't create the Willie Horton ad. I'm sure he was perfectly glad to have its effect, but that was not him who created it. That's really uh, like matters to you that he didn't personally. Hold on, and let him it? finish. Let him. Finish. I do think it matters. Yeah, I think it matters. I think that part a lot of what, like, politics is you know has elements of dirtiness to it, and it is very very hard for anyone to go through a career as long as his, the one that he had, and not to sully yourself and not to get filth and not to you know not to have blood on your hands in a certain extent. And he definitely does, and I think you guys have cited great examples of it. But I also think like that when you consider a person in full and you consider a person in in death in full, 
that you have to you you do owe it also to and I think Emily I think your 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 weight was so off base I mean it's like you yes all of those things you cited were were things that were wrong there were choices that he made that were wrong ethically suspect or morally suspect and you know I think he probably felt bad and maybe in his diary he confided dear diary like as a whole if you like you also owe it to to contemplate the life served the life lived as a whole and I don't know how you can contemplate George H.W. Bush's life as a whole and not come to the conclusion he was a person who tried overwhelmingly to act for the public interest, maybe not always in ways that you agree with, but he overwhelmingly tried to at a much greater rate than almost anybody who's comparable to him. And I, and John, going back finally to your initial point was when can you look at this person in full? I think with the Emily, yeah, you're, when it's the president, you look at them in full immediately, unless it's a president who's been assassinated and cut down in the in the prime of, of his or her mm-hmm. life, and you have to have a moment of it. But he's 94 years old. He's been out of office for whatever, 30 years. Like, it's very easy on day one to look at the whole legacy. Well, here's why I question, here's why I wonder about that. Because we, you know, speak no ill of the dead is kind of a, a, a norm for private behaviors. Uh, I'll get to the fact that he's a, not a, solely a private citizen. But we, we, we feel that when we go to funerals of family members we know who have uh, blemishes, that's usually not talked about that much. So then the question is, does a nation need that same buffer in the same way a family does? Because there is a benefit. It seems to me there are two possible schools of thought. There is the one is that there is a benefit for the kind of standard that everybody's been talking about for the last five days and that he did in many, many parts of his life try to live up to in his private behavior and in his public behavior, a standard that usually uh, in this way in the, defines character, which is a sense of restraint and a sense of empathy for other people, accepting everything we've just said about that he didn't uh, have that and do that in every single instance in his life. And that question is one we're still debating. But but that there is a moment to recognize that and hold that up. And again, as Emily mentioned, particularly because we are in a time now where um, the president is actively challenging a lot of those usual standards, that you have that that there is a national benefit to holding up that ideal. The other school of thought is um, that there is something actually undermining by not being sort of fully truthful and frank about the way things happen. So Stanley McChrystal has a new book out about leadership, and he talks about how the painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware, the famous one, shows him standing on the boat in a way you never could possibly stand. His hair's looking perfect, and he looks like this untouched bit of perfection going across the water. And then there's the actual real version of what was likely to happen, which was he was on like a rickety barge, looked like hell, everybody was malnourished, and it was a much grittier scene. What is a more... What is more useful? Are they both useful? Is one more necessary? Is one more realistic? What, which one uh, do you do both but in a sequence? Um, and, and I don't know what the answers to any of those questions are, but I think they are raised by the ceremony and I think everybody's view that it's necessary not to just treat people as if they are heroes when heroes in everything that they did when, when that wasn't right and that's not true to the facts of the case. Yeah, I'm going to defend my way off base position here, which is that I don't think you can just dismiss this as dirty politics. I mean, the lineup of examples that we've collectively put together of moral failures are all of a particular kind where you're 
willing to go after vulnerable groups. You're willing to say that there are people in America who basically like don't count and are not going to be subject to the same. You're you're not going to give them the same kind of respect. And I don't think it matters one whit whether you do that on your own or let Lee Atwater do that on your behalf. And for someone who was revered as this patrician who comes down to us with all of his um, privileged heritage to buy into that means something. It makes it acceptable in a wider sense. And I also think that right now for, you know, people in power to whitewash him or not really reckon with um, the damage that those actions took is just to kind of continue that. Like It makes me actually like furious right now to see, I guess I'll just say like white people in power, although I really mean like people of privilege who are willing to just kind of look aside at all of this because we are still grappling with all of these divisions and fissures and George H.W. Bush at a moment when it would have probably had some political cost to him, but in terms of his personal heart and where he said he was in his diary and privately, it would have been the right thing to do. And he didn't do it. I feel like it's important to hold him accountable for that. And in doing that, to hold ourselves accountable. The, um, Go ahead, John. Well, I would just say two two quick things. One, the idea of privilege is interesting because much of what um, spurred him to public service uh, um, was the idea that he felt throughout his life and that he's passed on to the generations after him, including all the way to his grandchildren, is that if you are a person of privilege, you have a duty to dedicate your life um, or a significant portion of it to serving and giving back to your country. It may not be in the way people would like, uh, but that is that notion of privilege was actually what spurred him uh, into public service. So it has a, a different definition in terms of his life. I would like to, in, in that context, actually talk about this idea of waspiness and the Bush as the last wasp president, certainly. Um, Ross Douthat wrote a, an encomium to to Waspy, to the Wasp president in New York Times. I think with the with the point being that Waspiness doesn't necessarily have to mean white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That it, that it instead you could if 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 Wasps had managed to make this switch and sort of say it represents a kind of aristocratic elite uh, leadership of self-sacrifice, devotion to certain kind of core communal values and public service, and that actually Mitt Romney, I mean, he, he uses Mitt Romney and Barack Obama as both embodying that, which I thought was a, a neat turn. Um, do you guys have any, I mean, none of us here are WASP. I did go to a WASP high school. Um, do, do any of you have any kind of feeling of regret or mourning at the passing of this age, not of WASP leadership, not of like John Cheever drunks at the country club, but of the, the, the kind of better values that you could argue, although Emily wouldn't, were embodied by, uh, by Bush. What I find so confusing and honestly resent about Ross's argument is that it takes this notion of public service that, like, yes, was part of George H.W. Bush's waspy heritage and and attaches it as if it doesn't also belong to all of us who have other heritages, right? Like, I think of public service as something that is part of my being Jewish. And I'm sure lots of other people, like Mitt Romney, like Barack Obama, see it fundamental to, to their heritage and their beings, too. Like, why why is Ross claiming this for wasps? And then, I mean, separately, that column has this sort of bizarre ending in which, if I understand it correctly, 
people who are in the kind of American elite aristocracy are supposed to like admit that they slash we or whoever is the ruling class and like and then what? And then it's supposed to rule and like treat everybody else like serfs or just recognize how hard it is for the serfs to get to be them. I I found that really, really both uh, well, of those I, arguments I, to be very odd. Yeah. No. I I, I'm, I can admit, like, I find it all very confusing, in part because actually the wasps I know, like, the wasps all seem dissipated, although kind of when I went to my waspy high school, the wasps were the ones who were, like, the worst students and the kind of ones headed off to the least. And the, and the people who kind of embodied the best of the school were, you know, the African-American kids, Jewish kids, Asian-American kids uh, who, who, were, who represented that ideal. And so but that that's was, Contrast too. Always, you don't with, know with, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who are like super successful and like earnest. Of course, and do it. I just plenty, feel like plenty. why I'm saying these this stereotypes a, are a, so noxious, no, whether they're like no, good or bad. I just but, it's yucky. You, can, well, sure, the stereotypes, but but I but do, the question is sort of like: Is there a value in having an aristocratic elite, an aristocratic elite that is trained up on a certain set of values, and whoever they are, whether they are, and and, and you can be of any background and be part of that aristocratic elite. But think of yourself as, as being part of that aristocratic elite. And is that valuable? And I kind and I think it is. And I think the reason we can see it is, is that when you, the opposing view view is sort of, I got mine. It's, it's, it's a, it's a rule of extremely greedy, selfish people. I totally like the, the self, disagree the with self, this. It's, it is it's the selfish the, people are much worse I, as leaders. I, those than, are not the only the, choices. On, there is a third choice, yeah. which is that everybody gets to have an ethos of public service and trying to help people. And that you don't have to self-define yeah. as part of the aristocratic elite to see that as like so foundational I, to who you want to be in the world. What is this like boxing off of like, oh, people yeah. with privilege get to define themselves this way? It's just totally bullshit. Well, it seems like also there's no way... Once you say wasp, you're, the the red flag has been waved and whatever nuance there is to your argument is going to get shredded. Agreed. So the idea that America and that the heroes in American life, both public and private, have a set of values and character traits that are inculcated whether, however it may happen, but that are kind of seared into their bones and that they, they then struggle like all of us do to live and stay close to that standard Wherever it came from, yes, that's that's a really good thing to have. One of the things that could, should get seared in is that even if you've been raised in that way, because you can't just pick up this stuff along the way. You know, it has to be uh, given to you somehow by your parents, your pastor, your teachers, your friends down the block, right. whatever institutions it is. Need to, institutions and communities need to teach it. Yes, that's, that's right. fine. And it that's can fine. Be but anyway, and they need to, it doesn't to, have to, to be reserved you. for right. special people. Right. Oh, I'm right. not saying right. it has right. to be reserved He's, for special people. It so should kind be of everyone, were a minute but I'm ago. saying it has to be. No, no well. I'm saying it has to be that like every institute, the military does it, churches do it, like a, it, schools do it, and these schools can be public, they can be private, they can be you know sectarian, they can be you know anything, they can be churches of Satan for all so I care. So why but it, buy like, into it, the framework of an aristocratic elite? And also like why because start... that's because that Go ahead. well because because that is how America was shaped with that. That was that it's I'm not what even Ross sure. is harkening back to at all. What We've Ross is harkening been... back to is 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 that that but notion that's also that the, kind that of the, the presidency and the leadership to. us immigrants like we were always there. There was always the immigrant idea of people coming up from nothing that is just as much a part of American history, if not more. Like we are not actually that country where the same people ruled forever and like the rest of us just um, you know like scrabbled in the dirt. That's not what happened. 
Can I just say that um, the diversion, separate and apart from that, the the qualities that he did have that that he exercised both uh, on, that George, Trump, talking about. George Herbert Walker Bush had that um, <laughs> that he had with res- just for waspiness. Sorry, George. that. Uh, <laughs> That he had in terms of fellow feeling and empathy towards people just at a human level, you know, writing people he barely knew about the death of their young children because of his experience, the the connections he had and the the love that he spread out to people. You can't have the reaction to his de- death that he has had. Let's discount for the hagiography that comes on and that is required in part by our current media culture. Even if you discount for that, this was a person who's, who touched a lot of lives in a, in a private way that is um, laudable as a personal goal. But as a president, the, the restraint that he ended up showing and for which he is now posthumously getting rewards for – and he was lampooned about it at, uh, at the time – reminds me some of the – rediscovering people had about Eisenhower when they when uh, when um, F- uh, Fred Greenstein did, wrote the hidden hand of the presidency he basically went back and looked at Eisenhower and said these people said he was everybody used to say he was totally out of touch and a bumbler but it turns out he was operating but just in a restrained way that wasn't kind of popular in the in the way presidents were covered at the time when the Berlin Wall fell uh, there was a rush to George Bush to say, oh, isn't this great? Both Democratic leaders of Congress said you need to be championing America. And what Bush knew because of his relationship with Gorbachev and also his understanding of the other former Soviet bloc states was that if he was triumphant and went and danced on the wall, as he said, that he would have pushed Gorbachev into a corner, would have given the hardliners in in Moscow who wanted to keep the Cold War raging, uh, that he would have made the situation worse. That sense of restraint in a job that is calling you to act like an action hero is a really important and necessary presidential attribute. His decision on the 1990 budget deal, or 1991 budget deal that happened in 1990, which is a fundamental moment in the splitting of the the Republican Party because Newt Gingrich at the signing at the the announcement of the deal at the White House Newt Gingrich actually leaves and isn't a part of the the process and you that split later leads to the to the Gingrich revolution in 1994 but Bush's choice to take personal political a huge personal political risk for the benefit of the country is the kind of decision-making that we usually praise in presidents who do the right thing rather than the politically expedient thing. Um, and I think that, that his clean air, the work on the Clean Air Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act also slot more into the traditional way that the framers and the, the, you know, the good government people would like to see government operate. We should also note, we, uh, if you're, have I already mentioned Iran-Contra? No, but you should no. because yeah. he pardoned. He said a lot he was of out folks. of the loop, and I think John Meacham's book about uh, President Bush, I think, um, is pretty clear about uh, George Bush being less out of the loop than he um, than he claimed at the time. George Shultz, Secretary of State, and Casper Weinberg, the Secretary of Defense, uh, warned Bush about some of the things he was saying publicly that suggested he was uh, less knowledgeable about what was going on uh, than he actually was. And he pardoned six people on his way out of office in a way that protected him. So if we're going to talk about you know how we want the government to work, that is an example of uh, a different kind of way in which we do not want the government to work. We just I'm just just need to protect the aristocracy, Emily. Last question, actually, Emily. Like, you somehow <laughs> longing for, but also. 
also denigrating <laughs> for no reason based on stereotypes at one and the same time. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give you the last word, Emily. I'm giving you the last word. Oh, which I, is... well, before you give her the last word, I would like at my funeral for people to say uh, like 30% of what they said at what, George Bush's. Can, can, who like get, John, be... who do you designate? Which of you do, do you designate? Like, which of us two do you designate like... to, to be the truth teller? I would like Alan Simpson to uh, to be at to speak at my funeral. Um, yeah, who would you designate as the truth teller? That's a really interesting because I think there is a super important public, as I've already said, public role for that. Um, but I don't know. It would be interesting. I don't know. I don't. Maybe uh, listeners can um, write in with their thoughts about how you would make this a a part of the standard saying goodbye to these public figures. That's interesting. See, I don't actually feel the need for the truth-telling to happen at the funeral or the memorial service for no, no. a public or a private figure. Okay. But you want there to be an official truth-teller? Because I feel like there's been plenty no, of I George want... H.W. truth-telling. You just had to go find it. Well, Not, well you we do, did. but you have to go find but you want to find it. I guess my point is there should be a time and place because what happens is when people try and give the full picture of anybody, they are denounced immediately as being, you know, liberals or they're denounced as not impolite. Um, being impolite. Thank you. I guess my point is everybody agrees on a on a time when you can have this conversation, uh, and then when you actually have a moment like this, you can say, "Well, but we all previously agreed that the necessary proper assessment, which allows us to be clear-eyed about the office and about human behavior, by the way, you know, will take place at this hour." I, I realize look this is to a that bit of a, broad agreement. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could reach consensus uh, just about that. Uh, all right, last last question, Emily, to you on this, which is just. Is it nice that there has been a, you know, 48-hour break from the partisan hellscape, or is it all phony? Oh, it's nice. It's always nice to have a break from the partisan hellscape. Who, who can argue with that? I don't care if it's phony. It's still nice. Slate Plus members get a bonus segment on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, as you well know. You can go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today. Today's Slate Plus segment is just a it's a teaser it's a it's a little appetizer for our conundrum show we're going to tackle uh a conundrum that was sent in to us give you a little bit of a sense about what what's to come in our conundrum show so we will be doing a soon to be revealed conundrum for our slate plus segment go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member now it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Wisconsin. What a mess. As my dear colleague Emily Bazelon just said sideways to me. Uh, we are joined by Dan Kaufman, the author of The Fall of Wisconsin, to talk about what is going on in the Badger State. I don't even know if that's what you call it. I'm just, I just made that up. In uh, what's going on in Wisconsin and how uh, the, this period between the election, the 2018 election, where Democrats won the governor's and attorney general's office in Wisconsin in, and also did the same in Michigan, how during this lame duck session – Wisconsin legislators and and the lame duck governors of Wisconsin and Michigan are going after certain 
authority that governors and attorney generals have in those states. What does it portend? What does it signify? Where does it come from? Why is it happening? Uh, so, Dan, welcome to the GabFest. Well, thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, so what is going on in Wisconsin? What has happened? And and where did it come from? Well, And will the Republicans get away with it? Uh, all great questions. You know, what happened in the immediate uh, last couple of days was the state legislature passed a bill with uh, serious and significant changes to the government structure. To They took a lot of powers of the governorship and the attorney general and took them for the legislature. Tony Evers, uh, the Democratic candidate, won the election. The Democrats won every statewide office. However, the state is heavily gerrymandered, and the Democrats only took one assembly seat and actually lost a state Senate seat. And uh, the Democrats have never won more than 39 of um, 99 assembly seats since the gerrymandering in 2011. But what happened is there was uh, a dramatic ramming through of a very serious and significant change to Wisconsin's separation of powers. A couple of examples are Tony Evers will no longer be allowed to pull Wisconsin out of a multi-state lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act, which is something that he campaigned on. They also rammed through uh, more than 80 appointments. Uh, This was done in the wee hours of the morning. It was uh, kind of a chaotic scene. I was there at the Capitol. And they were redrafting amendments, stuff that had never been debated. A lot of these uh, appointees had never been vetted. Uh, There was no public hearing on them. And it was kind of the denouement of eight years of almost unbroken Republican control in Wisconsin. Wisconsin became, in 2011, when Walker was, uh, was inaugurated, quickly became a kind of flashpoint for a kind of radical conservative um, ideas, uh, particularly attacking public sector employee unions. And uh, they passed a bill called Act 10, which decimated uh, collective bargaining rights for public employees. And Wisconsin became a kind of national model. They've passed a lot of things that have really transformed what was had been a very progressive state going back uh, more than a century with uh, a tradition of kind of open and transparent government. They've gutted the state's campaign finance laws and the redistricting, as I mentioned. They instituted, uh, passed one of the most uh, strictest voter ID laws and so on. And a lot of these things have, um, as I you know, noted in in a piece I wrote for the New York Times that a lot of these things have kind of engineered their dominance, if you look at it. I mean, they bankrupted the labor movement and um, the campaign finance laws benefited them because their donors are far wealthier than um, on the other side. And this new effort will keep the balance tilted in their favor for some time. They've taken powers um, away from both of those offices that were both won by Democrats. And a lot of people have uh, questioned why this is being done now. Um, And uh, I think that's a a reasonable question. So one thing that struck me in hearing about all this is how at odds it is with the sort of intellectual political history of Wisconsin, at least as I learned about it when I was writing about the um, gerrymandering in 2010. You know, Wisconsin, like... It's kind of foundational to the progressive movement and the Wisconsin politicians who got all of that started. And it was very much like a 
bipartisan development, as I understand it. Like, they were thinking, like you said, Dan, about openness and transparency in government. I think they passed, like, one of the first Freedom of Information Acts in the country. They set up a really excellent university system. The whole idea was to be, you know, kind of disseminating knowledge. It had this really, like, universalist, not partisan at all flavor to it that was, like, special. And as I understand it, um, a kind of matter of pride for Wisconsin. And now what you have here is just like totally cutthroat partisan politics, very much reminiscent of what happened in 2011. So, you know, after the census, it's time for redistricting. And there are these totally secret map making processes going on in a law office right across the street from the Capitol, where the Republican um, small group that's drawing the maps is like calling over state lawmakers one by one to check them out. Only the Republican state lawmakers get to come look at how their maps have been redrawn. Then there's like the minimum amount of public hearing and 24 hours, these maps are law. It just feels like this is a kind of repeat of that sort of process that, of course, is enabled by that gerrymandering. And the fact that the Democrats won 53 percent of the vote does not affect the majority of the legislature. And, you know, you just got to wonder in terms of looking forward, like if there if there aren't real repercussions for this politically, is this like the wave of the future for a party that is willing to be ruthless. I mean, obviously, Wisconsin is kind of exporting what North Carolina has been doing over the last couple of years. And then we see this repeated in Michigan and and a little bit also in, in Ohio. Um, this idea that the lame duck is your time to not hand over power and help prepare the people coming in, but change everything. So they just like their hands are tied and they can't deliver on important campaign promises. Yeah. Also, I mean, also, the go ahead. Sorry. I mean, just on the point about the lame duck, just two quick points. Sorry, Dan. One is that uh, the great thing about the lame duck is you no longer – I mean, basically for the entire year before an election, politicians are are way too craven and fearful to do anything. Lame duck, they're like, eh, hell with it. It's all done. We got two years to election. Those of us Gloves are going to be back. And most of us – a bunch of us aren't going to be here. So who cares? Let's just use it. I, I, I always wonder, and John, you probably have a good answer for this – why we haven't moved much more towards the British system, which is you lose the election, you're out, like you're gone. The next day, we just do the transfer of power. I know that, you know, there's there are historic reasons why it took a long time to get people to Washington. But I don't understand why the state legislature right. in Wisconsin, if they'd lost the election on November 1st, why there's not the new legislature on November 2nd. That's what the people want. Like, I don't see what the what the barrier is to to doing that. Logistically, you've got to do the transferring and you've got to there's, you know, some finished business, but they're um, from the previous session. And also, by the way, sometimes it can work in advantage. I mean, the people who no longer have his um, who no longer have to worry about their political future can do things that you might want them to do. Um, so, per, for example, at the moment, people who are not fans of the presidents are happy that Jeff Flake is blocking his judicial nominees in order to get the Mueller Protection Act potentially passed. Who knows what's going to ultimately happen with that? But it's not always uh, adverse to your to your uh, views. Sometimes it can be work for you and sometimes can, can work against you. Um, let me ask two questions of Dan before I have to leave. One is... What is the putative reason for blocking uh, Evers from being able to stop the lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act? And then secondly, on the on since there was that federal judge who ruled in 2016 against the changes in early voting, saying that it intentionally discriminated against the basis of race. It seems like the fact that that they are trying to limit from six weeks down to two the early voting 
after it's been demonstrated that in Madison and Milwaukee, there was a massive uh, increase in voter participation as a result of expanding the early vote, it would seem to me the courts would come back in and, and basically do what they did in 2016. Yeah, they claim that they've made some changes to it to address that. I don't think that many people believe that. But I think you're right. You know, what drove those Democratic victories was massive turnout in Dane and Milwaukee counties, the state's two largest, and they they do start voting six weeks early. Um, As far as your other, the punitive reasons are hard to (laughs) grasp. I mean, uh, Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald has been a little bit more transparent about it. He, one of the changes that they had proposed was to uh, move a Supreme Court election to avoid it being held on the same day of the Democratic presidential primary in 2020. And he said plainly to reporters, this is to give their candidate, uh, a Walker appointee, uh, a better chance of winning. And that caused such an outrage. 60 of 72 county clerks said that they opposed it. These are places also very conservative counties. It was just impossible. It cost $7 million. It would have made three elections in three consecutive months. It's a very bizarre um, argument. Uh, Speaker Voss, the Speaker of the Assembly, Robin Voss, has said, we're just trying to, you know, make the legislature a co-equal branch so that Tony Evers will respect us. I mean, Wisconsin, in 170 years, there's been four lame duck sessions. Never have they taken up anything at all controversial. So it's it's very new. It's obvious because, uh, you know, Walker lost. Um, Fitzgerald has been a little bit more honest. He said, Tony Evers, it, we're worried that he's going to put in these liberal policies, and we don't want that. However, there was an election, and um, yeah. and that is what the people decided they wanted. I mean, it's probably the most uh, partisan gerrymandered state in the country. There was a case that Emily wrote about, uh, the Whitford case, which um, went to the Supreme Court and was sent back. They said the plaintiffs didn't have standing. Uh, the case is still going forward. They're, they found the plaintiffs and uh, will proceed. But a federal panel had ruled the first time in 30 years that it was unconstitutional because it was just so extreme. It was denying Democrats uh, equal protection. So it's it's an abuse of power. They, they, they are very insulated and the rhetoric around it is not selling at all. And even, even some conservatives have come out against it. There was a big uh, donor, Sheldon Lubar, who was a longtime Walker supporter and so on, has said this is just ridiculous, you know, um, but... They have the votes. One of the things I've been wondering about is what the political ramifications here are for Tony Evers and the Democrats. Because if you run for office and you're trying to make changes like getting out of this Affordable Air, uh, Care Act lawsuit and um, other changes that were going to help um, poor and working class people in Wisconsin, and then you don't deliver, it seems like the message that people get is just one more message about government dysfunction. And I worry about that both in terms of um, the message in Wisconsin and then more broadly, um, whether that's right. something that's like part of this, David. Yeah, yeah actually, no, I mean, just to add on to that, it's like I wonder if we're heading in Wisconsin for the same kind of thing that we have at the national level, which is this this kind of notion that government only functions in the brief period when you have a majoritarian rule of all all the bodies in it and all, all, you know, the legislature and and the executive and that otherwise it's completely paralyzed. And, and as a result, you end up with a huge amount of disillusionment with the political process and with government generally. And I would actually, I would add to that, which is that we have held, there's been, it's been an article of faith in America. I mean, it's a bit sort of founding principle. Oh, democracy works best 
at the state level. That's where that's where it all happens. And that because because state level democracies have to be responsive to the citizens in a way that national national government has always been seen as sort of like you know concerning itself with bigger things and it's insulated, it's geographically separated, but that the state level government is is going to be responsive and it, what are the consequences if we have a state government which is completely or largely uh, indifferent to the will of its people and isn't responsive to the majority of its people. And is that going to have, you know, cascading bad consequences? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to contribute to a lot of cynicism and disaffection. It has in Wisconsin already, which had a strong tradition of citizen participation for, for a long time people in Wisconsin voted for something different. And again, Democrats won every statewide office. So, Yeah, I mean, we should also say it's not that Democrats don't ever like play hardball in state politics, but it's asymmetric warfare that we're talking about here right now. Um, And that's why we keep identifying it with Republicans. Dan, before we um, close, I'm interested in the Foxconn project. So, you know, there's been this effort in Wisconsin to build this huge Foxconn plant with like gazillion tax breaks for this company. It's a big project of walkers. It was controversial because of the tax breaks and also environmentally. And one of the things that um, the legislature has done is change the new governor's um, ability to manage or change that project. And I wonder what, how you think that will play out. Well, it's it it will probably hamstring them. The project is kind of widely perceived uh, as a boondoggle, four and a half billion dollars in taxpayer money now and counting. Um, and this is not just tax breaks. This is actually direct check uh, a lot of it from the taxpayers because manufacturing companies in Wisconsin don't pay any taxes anyway. So they're going to give this Foxconn, which is the large world's largest contract man, uh, electronics manufacturer, a check. And the company promised uh, 13,000 jobs. Now it's 3,000 jobs. Most of the assembly work will be done by really? robots. Whoa. So, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible how Whoa. it's delivered. Yep. It's, it's an amazing project. And it's really the relevant, too. The cost per job is yeah. insane, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. – and there's, they're taking land by eminent domain, the village of Mount Pleasant. I wrote about uh, this for, for The New Yorker. And it's a very heavy-handed effort to clear out landowners. Uh, one – former uh, Democratic uh, nominee who was the most against the idea, a guy named Matt Flynn, basically called it, a, you know, a Chinese communist economic development model, you know, and, and in some ways he has a point. I mean, they've, they've seized land that, you know, people's homes and uh, they've been through eminent domain, they can set the price. Um, so it's, it's been a disaster. I think it did contribute somewhat to uh, Walker stopped touting it. Uh, there was a big groundbreaking with President Trump. He was involved in bringing it to Wisconsin. But uh, Walker on the campaign trail barely mentioned it. And when he did, it was quite defensive because outside of southeastern Wisconsin, it's viewed quite negatively. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, you guys. I really appreciate joining you. Great to have you on. Thanks for coming. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, 
and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. John had to step out for a minute, so he's going to miss this next segment, but he'll be back for Cocktail Chatter. And now, from one... one Beat up state to the next. National, one national embarrassment to the next, let us move southeast from Wisconsin and head over to North Carolina, to the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina, in particular district in southwestern, the southern, southern western part of the state, uh, where Mark Harris, a Republican, beat Democrat Dan McCready on Election Day by 905 votes uh, in a close race. But McCready conceded. Harris was on his way to Washington. And then, and then, dear friends, all hell broke loose, which is that the North Carolina Board of Elections, a bipartisan body equally split between Democrats and Republicans with, I think, an independent as the, the uh, tiebreak, unanimously refused to certify the election. And why did they unanimously refuse to certify the election? They unanimously refused to certify the election because they found, thanks to some journalistic reporting and other work, that there was some extremely fishy stuff going on with absentee ballots in part of that district. Notably in one county, I think it's Bladen County, if I'm remembering correctly, though Republicans constituted only 19% of those requesting absentee ballots. They represented 62% of those ballots, the ballots returned, which was a weird anomaly. And as they started looking into this, there seemed to be evidence that somebody, and that somebody appears to have been someone acting on behalf of the Harris campaign, was going around to people who had requested absentee ballots and collecting their absentee ballots, which you're not supposed to do, uh, you're only allowed to, the only people who are allowed to kind of collect an absentee ballot from you, I think, are a spouse or dear, like someone really close to you. But they were collecting absentee ballots and taking them off. And then those absentee ballots maybe never were submitted. Maybe they never showed up anywhere. We don't even know what happened to them. Uh, but they don't seem to have been included in the vote tallies. So there's a lot of mess going on right now. There's investigations going on right now. And there's a possibility that the House majority, the Democrats in the House majority will refuse to seat Harris, even if North Carolina ultimately certifies the election, uh, in which case there would have to be another election. If North Carolina refused to certify the election, there'd have to be another election. Emily, is this the kind of voter fraud that Republicans have been warning us about? Does it in fact show that, yeah, there is a lot of voter fraud going on and we really do need to crack down and have a lot of voter IDs? Because look at this mess. It's not related to that kind of voter fraud at all, because the whole idea of voter ID is that you're trying to prevent in-person voter fraud, where you show up at the polls and you vote twice or you, like, go vote at lots of different polls. But I can't resist, like, making the dumb joke that, you know, Republicans have been complaining about voter fraud of some kind or another. And lo and behold, they, like, really succeeded in ginning up a lot of it in um, North Carolina. There's just some weird irony there. But... Really, the truth is that 
absentee um, voter fraud of this kind where ballots get mailed out, they don't come back, maybe someone interferes somewhere along the way, scoops up a batch of them, fills them out. This is something that isn't like a major problem in American politics, but it's a real problem. It's not a total ghost out there. And so when election experts are speaking carefully, they talk about in-person voter fraud and they separate it from the absentee ballot kind of shenanigans we're seeing here. You know, just one thing to add to your description is it seems like we're talking about between 1,000 and 2,000 absentee ballots that, like, are kind of missing in action here. And some of the people who ordered them um, have come forward and said, like, hey, my vote wasn't counted. I mean, we all sign absentee ballots. So they're actually a kind of vote where you can track whether they showed up or not. And then the other thing are these reports of people like describing a particular woman um, who came by and picked up all these votes. And then there's this like kind of feud between a particular storefront owner in Bladed County who let the operatives who were doing this rent space and says that he was watching them basically like cheat on all these absentee voters. And then um, his candidate for sheriff lost to the operatives candidate. And so he got mad and they had a fight. And now he's like turned on. Can you remind me the name of the guy who's at the center of all this? He has a great name. Leslie McRae Dallas Jr. Yeah. Leslie, who, was, <laughs> who was doing grassroots work for the Harris campaign and seems to be the, the Machiavelli who was ordering the collection of these absentee ballots and paying people to collect yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. And I think he works, works for an outfit called like Red Dome, which is, you Red know, Dome. Yeah. yeah, which is a great name to be caught up in a scandal like this. So, you know, look, there's, first of all, just the integrity of this election. And should they do it over again? Because they actually think that it could have come out differently, um, only separated by 905 votes. So that's like one big question. We almost never have do-over elections in this country. But this seems like the rare instance in which maybe one could actually happen. And then I think you just have this larger question about whether what exactly the Harris campaign knew and what that says about the sort of lengths particular candidates are willing to go to to win. I feel like we're sort of hitting on a theme here in these last two topics and maybe in our first topic, too, about the like unraveling of basic standards of American democracy and politics. And it's really unsettling to watch. And it also is this weird way in which like life continues, right? Because we're talking episodically about things that are happening in particular parts of the country. And so even though it's like foundational to majority rule, we just like pick up and go on with our lives. Right. I think what's interesting about this is that regardless of the outcome and whether Harris is seated, Harris is not seated, whether there's a new election, McCready wins it, McCready doesn't win it, like the actual result is a loss of faith in the institution of elections and democracy. So it ultimately has the same impact that all these accusations of in-person voter fraud. The thing that, that a lot of Republicans are trying to accomplish, which is to make people more cynical about voting and thus cause the only people to vote or the, the people to vote to be the, the ones who, for whom it's easiest to vote who tend to vote Republican, th- it's going to have that, that the same baleful impact and the same lower trust in elections, the same lower trust in government institutions. And that's just bad. So do you and think there's any people chance? more cynical. Right. And do I don't you... understand. I don't understand. Like, I really don't understand. I understand at like the, the narrowest level why an individual person in the Republican Party, why Leslie McCray Dallas and Mark Harris 
will do almost anything to cheat to win the election. I get that. I, people, you know, they're ambitious. They, they don't want to, you know, this is a big prize and you want it. I don't understand as a whole why the Republican Party is so happy to have institutions and have the institution of democracy battered and weakened and and cast doubt on it. It just it's it's just obviously it's going to have a bad impact in the long run for the country as a whole. Right, so but then it's why a power grab in the that? short term, right? And that seems to be the calculation yeah. right now, which is like depressing. Do you think there's a chance that this actually galvanizes people that these kinds of stories make people think my vote is precious. I am going to get out there. I'm going to make sure to hand deliver my ballot myself. I mean, I I know there's something sort of romantic about that notion, but I I guess I wish that these stories were able to strengthen democracy because there would be a reaction that's like bigger than the damage that gets done. Yeah, and I think sometimes that is the case. Like sometimes, yes, it's the the thought that your ballot is threatened makes people turn out. But you can only play that game so many times. And and the, the people who are threatening and the people who are undermining if they are able to do it election after election after election, you know, it's it's just a pain. Like the, the one of the things that is underappreciated is just it's a kind of a pain to vote in this country. It's not easy. It's not nearly as simple as it could be. And the reason is that there's certain forces that want it to be difficult because it benefits them. And yes, once in a, yes, you can get people to be galvanized to show up that one time. Yes. But can you do it election after election after election after election? No, because people just are like, oh, man, this is this really sucks. Why is it so hard? Eh, I'm just going to tune out. These guys never get anything done anyway. It's all corrupt. And people become cynical and they give up. That's what's happening in this country. And so I, it doesn't it seems to me if you have another election, it's very likely that McCready could win that election because Democrats will be galvanized. Harris will be stigmatized. Sure. But in the long run, do I think that the the health of North Carolina's democracy will be stronger because people felt their ballot threatened this time. I do not. I think that people will be, they'll be disillusioned. We'll just participate less. Do you think that we make too big a deal out of these kinds of scandals? You know, when you look back in American history, there have been plenty of times when an election was effectively stolen, like including possibly JFK's victory in 1960, right? Like we have these moments where we kind of, in retrospect, they become sort of sepia-toned. And it's like, oh, yeah, LBJ, that machine, the dailies in Chicago. But when it happens in our time, it seems so alarming. And I kind of wonder about that disconnect. Yeah. No, that's that you sound like me. That's a that's a really good point, Emily. I I was just thinking about this and I think what it is actually is that while it is true that historically elections have been plenty stolen and manipulated and screwed with, there has been until until recent years there's been a general march of progress, right? Like they've become slightly less corrupt. The ballots become more secret, like counting is more reliable. The election board's more independent. Like you don't have the squeaky lever. You don't, you know, you don't have to vote in public anymore. The, in general, progress has been the institution of democracy has been getting more or less stronger. Most of mostly as a trend through the last two hundred and some odd years of American history. What has happened is that we are weakening institutions. And I think one of the points that we've all focused on is that when you weaken institutions, when you shatter institutions, it's just much harder to build them back up. So while it is true, like we are probably elections are a lot better. Even this McCready election, Harris-McCready election is probably a lot better than your average corrupt election was, you know, 100 years ago. 
the fact that we have taken something that was good and made it much worse means it's much harder to to restore it. It's like you're suddenly on a, you know, you're sli- sliding in the wrong direction now. And that's, it's much harder to recover. When you head in the wrong direction with an institution, it gets bad fast. Right. And it also feels bad. so unnecessary. Like, you know, you kind of cut people in the past some slack because it was back then. And like, I don't know, maybe that's wrong. But it feels like it's okay to cut people in history some slack. And like, we're supposed to be understanding how to do elections. Like that kind of basic competence should be higher over time. So before we go, just in in the merge, merging of the Wisconsin and North Carolina stories, I just also noted this extraordinary story, uh, uh, which was on, I think, on Huffington Post, about the chicanery that the North Carolina legislature is trying to pull, again, during this uh, lame duck session, which is the, the uh, North Carolina legislature is trying to pass a bill that would require election boards in every county to be chaired by, in odd-numbered years, so in non-election years, it would be, require the election board to be chaired by the member of the political party with the highest number of registered voters. And in even-numbered years, the boards would be chaired by a member of the party with the second highest number. So as it happens in North Carolina, there are a lot more registered Democrats than registered Republicans. So what this, this, this bill would do is say, oh, Democrats, as a prize for being so popular and so good, you get to chair this election board during the years when there are no elections and would lock in that, oh, Republicans, you get to chair the board during years when there are elections and then can make the rules and shift the rules and, you know, rule on the rules in the ways that you want during the election years. It's an incredible act of just brazen attempt to to mess with election rules and election fairness. Yes. It's outrageous. It is it's totally outrageous. Crazy. And Yes. And what we're also learning is like North Carolina starts these trends and then they get exported and we can expect to see them pop up in other states. And they're all complicated, too. It took you a lot of words to explain that. I feel like that's also a problem with this. I read the article and I was like, what? Wait, what? Odd, even? Who was? Oh, that's it. (laughs) Right. Oh, God. Yeah, it's bad. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are uh, when you are having a, a Wisconsin beer, Wisconsin suds, or you're having a North Carolina moonshine. Emily, what would you be chattering about? I feel worried this week about our colleagues at two publications. So the Weekly Standard looks like it may be shutting down because its owner wants to maybe kind of basically like raid its subscribers. Hire Rachel Larimore. Hire Rachel Larimore, whoever you are. If she leaves there... Grab that Rachel Larimore. Just yes, saying. and everyone else too. And um, it just seems like a terrible lesson that the conservative publication, where never Trumpers um, seem to cluster, is the one that's going to take this fall. Um, so sad about that. Sorry for all those folks. And then there's a really um, important, I think, piece by our friends Clara Jeffrey and Monica Bauerlein at Mother Jones this week about the effect that Facebook is having on traffic for Mother Jones and really for all kinds of media publications. Um, They just really take apart the way in which um, Facebook has like rapaciously you know, push publications to deliver certain kinds of content like video and bells and whistles and then changed and then just basically like pulled the rug out from under them traffic wise. And I I just thoroughly recommend this piece as a way of understanding how Facebook's influence on how so many people consume news is changing. The 
media landscape. Um, it just has way, way too much power. And this is like one more nail in the coffin of which there are many nails of the notion that Facebook is um, anything other than like a company bent on making as much money as possible, breaking whatever it takes along the way to do that. And then, of course, there's also this revelation this week of this trove of documents that the British release that also shows via emails how Facebook was, you know, denying or giving out data as a kind of way of favoring certain companies over others. So anyway, check out Clara and Monica's piece and um, and worry with me about the influence of Facebook over over the media landscape. And then like go figure out how to consume some media without Facebook so that we try to take away some of this oversized power. And go go support Mother Jones, which is one of the great magazines in America. And Clara and Monica talk about this. You can become a sustaining donor to them, and they're the best. And it, you know, be, take give them support that way rather than by clicking on some dumb Facebook link. Clara has also doing been doing an amazing job of raising money for various very like public important causes uh, using her Twitter feed to um, get people going for donors choose projects. It's been really awesome. John, what's your chatter? So my ch- chatter is about um, Courtney Dowalter. She is an extreme. I read about her. Yeah. Wow. Isn't this amazing? Oh, my gosh. So she specializes in running long races, but not just a marathon and not just two marathons. Marathon upon marathon upon marathon. There's a great story in the Times about her. And basically, she runs in these extremely long distance races. So it starts with her 165 miles into a 205 mile race. And she's hallucinating. She's seeing puppets playing on a swing set and trees and rocks turning into faces. And she participates in this other race or this one race called Big Big's Backyard um, Ultra, where you run. Let's see. You have to complete 4.1 miles in an hour. And you can – if you complete your um, – it sounds like basically a torture regime. But anyway, you can – if you complete your 4.1 four mile, four miles in less than an hour, you can then you know, eat or close your eyes or go to the bathroom because you're running for multiple days. In fact, at one point, do uh, she ran for 67 hours. Um, and this does some extraordinary things to the body. Um, in fact, she um, basically can't keep food down. Uh, and also she had to put um, eye drops in while she was running because the exertion caused her eye, basically caused her to go blind the last time she did this because her corneas swelled. Anyway, it's an amazing story of what the human body can do. And also it makes, you know, the piddling five-mile run you go on seem like um, oh, just what she does, you know, like in her sleep, literally. There, the, there were two points in there, John, that I found amazing. One was there's a description of how in one race she took a one-minute nap, and that one-minute nap kind of gave her the energy to push through and, and triumph. Can you imagine taking a one-minute nap? How would you ever do that? Uh, uh, that's the first thing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I take one-minute naps all the time, because, but not with intention. Uh, but the other is just that, that idea, which the, the story goes into, that that uh, because she's beating men at all these races, is there something um, about endurance and your that that w- do women have some capacity to push their bodies further psychologically? Their act, their willpower, is it greater than men's at this extreme level? And why might that be? Or is she just an outlier? Or what? What does it mean? 
Well, and that's what's so interesting about the piece, because it's mostly about the mental piece of it. Um, She tells herself jokes when she's running to make sure her mind is still working, that basically it's about the brain as much or more than the body. Uh, Anyway, it's a great story, and uh, she seems like a really interesting character. All right, my chatter, just continuing the the, uh, theme of places doing dismal things, places that are lively and attractive and have a, a long progressive history. Denmark. Denmark. Beloved little Denmark. Denmark, one of the richest countries in the world, has a, a new scheme. The right-wing government that, that is there, uh, the, the minister who's in charge of refugees and immigration, hasn't just, it's just like, you can't make this shit up. They are going to, they propose, it, it, it's not yet happened, they propose to house uh, people, various immigrants who they have, who they don't want, immigrants who may have committed a crime, or but immigrants who they can't send anywhere else because these are people who just cannot go back to their home countries because it would be too dangerous for them. So they're going to house these folks on an island miles away from anywhere else in Denmark, an island which now has laboratory stables and a crematory and at the Center for Researching Contagious Animal Diseases. So they're going to stick these people on this island, basically provide no ferry service, not give them any place to cook. So they're just going to have to eat whatever, you know, meals are provided, not give them the capacity to work. Um, And um, it sounds terrible. Just like it's just wanton cruelty, and obviously, and how it's can like, this let's be happening it, in Denmark? Country less desirable. We relied in Denmark. on Denmark to be like the the good place, you, right? The model yeah. place. I know. I found that story just so disheartening for that reason. You know what? The, the I also came across this other at the bottom of the story about it. Just crazy details, part of the ways in which Denmark is making itself unwelcome to immigrants. So, <laughs> the parliament is expected to pass legislation requiring immigrants who want to obtain citizenship to shake hands with officials as part of the naturalization ceremony. Oh, my God. So religious Why are they doing this? who can't shake hands? Because Muslim, some Muslims <sighs> cannot shake hands with someone of the opposite sex. Yeah, and uh, super so, ultra-Orthodox Jews, although they're probably not immigrating. Well, I don't think they're not worrying about that. They don't care about that. Yeah, I, I hear that, you. It's That's just awful. The, the, the level of malice Malevolence. in these things. Yeah, yuck. It's, it's awful. We also have listener chatter. Great listener chatters up and down, as always, as I say every week, because it's true. It friends. is always you're, true. You're, you are tweeting us amazing uh, chatters at, at Slate Gabfest and emailing us them at gabfest at slate.com. And this week's comes from Mike Stannis at, at They Call Me Marty. Mike proposes that we all take a look at the Opportunity Atlas, opportunityatlas.org. And what it is is an interactive map which you can put in different variables and shows what neighborhoods, what parts of the country give children the best chance to rise out of poverty. So check it out at opportunityatlas.org. It's a really clever and interesting map. All right. And hey, one more thing before we go. Slate, amazing digital magazine, incredible podcast empire. Also, did you know they make the best socks? Slate has an incredible pair of socks, slate branded socks. And I am a lover of socks. I, I, the only thing I ever spend money on for my clothes is socks. And I got a pair of these slate socks the other day and I love them. They're kind of garish. So you have to love a garish sock. They're 
really bold colors and it does say slate on it so if you don't like th- words on your socks you might not like it but they are delightful so if you are somebody who loves slate and who loves socks we got the we got the uh product for you which are slate socks go to slate.com slash socks and get some slate socks today you will not be sorry they're really fun i wore them to play soccer last week very colorful that is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabfest. You can tweet your listener chatter to us at SlateGabfest. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gabfest. You can email us at Gabfest at Slate.com. We do not have an Instagram account. We are not on <laughs> Pinterest. Emily is not selling any Gabfest souvenirs on Etsy yet, but maybe one day. Oh, what an idea. My future hand career. Hand-knitted Gabfest scarves. Little scarves. (laughs) On Etsy. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Sure. Okay. That's that's the new business line. You don't even have to do it. We'll just have, we'll just have like, uh, you know. Downwardly mobile. What would you pay, listeners? According to you. All those people who went to your school who you were observing. The dissipated wasps. The most ridiculous (laughs) thing that you said today. And there were other choices. The the dissipated wasp will be knitting scarves that we will sell on Etsy as having been handmade by Emily. That's the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson who had to run and catch a plane or something. Which We'll talk to you next week. I'm U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith, and I'm excited to announce my new podcast from American Public Media called The Slowdown. Life, like politics, moves fast. But good poetry offers a way for us to slow things down and examine the world through a new lens. Every weekday, I'll take just five minutes to share a poem and offer my perspective on what it can show us about the world. You'll hear poems on love and heartbreak, joy and grief, family and childhood, public history and private meditation. The Slowdown is a brief shot of poetry that you can start your mornings with and that you'll still be thinking about when the day ends. Listen to The Slowdown every weekday at slowdownshow.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.